Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at Clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Matthew Klein, CEO of Royvan Sciences. Thanks so much for joining us today, Matthew. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Great, Matthew. So to kick us off, would love if you could walk us through the arc of your career, some of the experiences you've had, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, thanks. You prepped me for that question, but it's always a funny thing to be asked. So I was a physicist as an undergraduate, not a physician. That was my academic area of interest, and it was a fun discipline, but I was not a very good physicist, as it turned out. I was not dexterous enough with experimental work or mathematically sophisticated enough to be a theorist. And so I did what lots of physicists did in the sort of mid-2000s, and I went and became a quant in finance. And so I worked at some really large financial institutions doing a sort of combination of quant work and derivatives structuring and ultimately derivatives marketing. Did that across a handful of different institutions. And then I caught this entrepreneurial bug. And so I went and I started a really boring financial technology company, which we don't need to go into the details of what it did. But that was a great experience in the sense that I'd gone from working at really big institutions to working at a two-person startup trying to build something and sort of realizing what that meant and what that felt like. And then that company effectively got subsumed back into a large bank. And at that point, it sort of lights out for me. I was kind of done working for a big company. So I stayed a little bit, but eventually I joined Royvent in very early 2016. And uh, yeah, fun thing about joining a, a startup like Royvent is we were really small at the time. So I got to do many, many different things over my career. I, I was not the founder. I started out as a head of finance and became a CFO, but an organization of our size, I had looked after finance and legal and accounting and business operations and HR and IT and all kinds of different fun things. And each of those different areas taught me different things about how the world works that are always surprising. So I did that for a period of a while. I looked after a bunch of different capital raises, kind of pushed us through late stage clinical development, obviously with a bunch of other people contributing as well, a bunch of programs, and then took on the CEO job here about a year and a half or almost two years ago now when our founder moved into a chairman role and started to do other things in life. We went public in the fall of 2021. And so that's been a, an interesting transition for us, especially you know if you're talking to other CEOs and they're debating whether to take their companies public, my one piece of advice is like, maybe if you're on the cusp of one of the greatest biotech market corrections in a long time, like wait until after it. That part has been a little bit of a process, but it's been good and it's been fun to be out there. And you know, since then, it's just been about execution. We've had a a busy year as a business. That's been fun too. Awesome. And talk a little bit about for the first time, you know, stepping into that CEO role, particularly given your background and what that experience and your own personal journey has been like. Yeah, it's a good question. I loved being our CFO was the answer. And I think that's true for a lot of people who like have a domain of personal experience. Like I just loved the job. I loved the complexity of it. Royven, if you don't know that much about us, has a sort of complicated operating model where we're kind of a hub and spoke structure with a central team that's responsible for, you know, ideation and incubation and building companies and overseeing a portfolio. And then a lot of the actual development work happens at what we call advanced themselves or members of our family. And as a consequence, the CFO job here is really interesting. You're sort of financing a portfolio. You're thinking about a portfolio. You've got a lot of different moving pieces, a lot of modularity. 
And it was just a great job because I joined the company pretty early in our life. I was able to kind of shape that role to do the things I found interesting and frankly, not to do the things I found less interesting. It was a fantastic job. And so actually, when Vivek approached me about the CEO role, which is about six months before I took it, his question to me, because he knew that I loved being our CFO, to be honest, was like, would you find the idea of being CEO abhorrent? And I had to give it some real thought, honestly. Like, I really sort of liked what I did and I liked being able to like do the actual work my hands on the meat of the substance. I'm a person who has the most fun when I'm working on a sort of detailed problem in the technical knit and grit of it. And there's a lot of room for that as a CEO too, but less, to be honest. If you're good at building a leadership team, you're the second person in every conversation, not the first person in every subject matter or domain expertise. So it was a transition. It's been fun in a lot of ways. It's been really interesting to see parts of the business that I didn't have to engage with before, sort of learn new technical disciplines as the sort of CFO. I had to learn certain things, parts of the business work, but like R&D as a function, for example, or basic research or whatever, are things that like lived under different people's remits when I was CFO. And so I had to learn about them from a financial perspective. I had to learn about them to talk to investors, but I didn't have to like make decisions affecting their day-to-day. And now I do. It's been an interesting challenge. I like the sort of human elements of working. I just like people. I like different kinds of people working with different kinds of people. Being CEO, you deal with a lot of personalities. It's just a big part of what the job is, is kind of adjudicating amongst viewpoints and dealing with people who want to sort of talk to the final decision maker. So that's been interesting, but it's been an adjustment. Some days I feel like I don't have a day job anymore, right? I feel like sort of the basic blocking and tackling is all sort of, there's always somebody else who's like responsible for Mm. the thing. And so that's been an adjustment for me, but I, still stick my nose in wherever I feel like I'm interested. And sometimes people are happy with that. Sometimes they aren't. And Matthew, for folks that are listening that perhaps are thinking about taking on a CEO role or are in one, any advice that you have around how to get ready for that? And perhaps talk a little bit about your own, how you work and operating model for you as a CEO. How do we get ready for it? You know, I think there's a couple of things. One is, and this was like integral to my decision to take this job, to be honest, you got to feel good about the team that you're going to be leading. Whatever that means to you, get there and get comfortable and get comfortable that you trust the people who are going to be working for you and that you've sort of built a mutual trust with them and that they're going to be comfortable with your working relationship. I think that's like especially true if you're getting promoted to this role from within and people are going from like your peers and colleagues to sort of being a part of the team that you lead. But even if not, if you're starting a new company, if you're taking on a new CEO role, You know, I think like spend a lot of time thinking about who you want to surround yourself with and surround yourself with really high quality people. There's like no alternative to that. I think that's like incredibly important. And then just like figure out how you want to get things done as a business. And I don't necessarily mean that as like a high level philosophical question, but like as a practical matter, like what decisions do you want to be involved with? What decisions don't you want to be involved with? How do you want to decide whether to be involved with something or not? Who on your team do you want to entrust with that decision making? Not even the decision making of the thing, but the decision making of what gets sent your way versus what doesn't. I feel like if you don't think about that ahead of time, you'll fall into the trap of the default norms for the organization or just the default for what people who work with you want. That might be good. It might not be good. But if you give it some intentional thought, you wind up using your time the way you want. And I think that's pretty important. My sense is for every CEO, time winds up being the single most limiting commodity. Yeah, certainly agree. And so talk a little bit more about Royvan and the model at Royvan, how it came to be and perhaps how it differs from how other folks approach building a biotech. 
I mean, I think going back to like our origin stories, I think there are a lot of really cool biotech companies out there that basically exist because of a germ of a scientific idea. An academic lab had an idea for how better to modulate a protein or an idea for how to deliver a variety of effects. And you have some kind of tech platform that's genetic in nature or whatever. Or, you know, there's a drug that was buried in a pharma company and someone extracts it and builds a company around it, whatever. There's like a bunch of different sort of ways that biotech companies get built. And I'd say like Revent was not anything like any of those. I think we never expected to be a single product or a single scientific platform company. Really, I'd say we were born out of a soup of frustration with how everything in our industry, mostly from the perspective of outside observers, investors, et cetera, but also the perspective of people who worked in it, seems like it always takes longer than it should, is more complicated than it should, is riskier than it should be, like decisions are made for weird and opaque reasons. And I think like you put all that together and we had sort of had this thought that you could build a better mousetrap if you just sort of approach each of the process problems that contributed to those facts. It's a whole bunch of pretty incremental problems. You know, data comes back from CROs slowly. Clinical data in the U.S. is siloed. Big pharma companies, very large pharma companies, mostly are driven by antecedent strategic commitments, like this idea that we want to be number one or two in oncology, or we want to be in the top five in neuroimmunology or whatever. And like all of these different factors that come together to create the obstacles that seem to make things slow and complicated. We were born out of the idea that if you tackled each of these little problems individually, and then you strung the solutions together, you could build something that was a sort of a differentially powerful engine for developing drugs. And so some of those solutions are sort of business process, industrial engineering kind of solutions like the VANT model that I described earlier, where we've got this sort of portfolio of companies under one umbrella. Some of these problems are literally solved by technology. We have a business called Logovant that's a CRO data aggregation tool that gives us much better information as we run trials from our CROs. Lots of different pieces of the puzzle have kind of different solves. And basically our view was if we could hire really great people who were going to run single-mindedly and without exhaustion at each of these problems individually, that the aggregate whole would be powerful. Yeah, it certainly resonates, Matthew. I'm curious, as you look at the sector right now, and we hinted at a little bit about the correction that's going on, I'd love to hear your thoughts around the rationale behind the correction and also how the current market conditions inform how you guys operate across your portfolio. The latter question is easy. And yeah. I think it's got to be the same for every company in our space, which is Raven is now a commercial company. We launched a psoriasis drug earlier this year. The first approximation is the first time we've had meaningful revenue as a business, right? Most biotech companies can be approximated by bank accounts. You put money in and then you spend it slowly and then maybe you put more money in at some point. And so I think when you're reliant on other people for money, if money is hard to come by, you have to be extremely disciplined and diligent in how you use it. And the truth is in biotech, it pays to have that discipline in any market. But in a market like this one where you don't know when you're going to be able to raise capital again, you just have to be very careful in spend. And so, for example, we change some of the shape of our investment plans. You just have to be able to do things like that in this climate to make sure that you're making the dollars last and applying the near-term impact on patients, which is the only real way to build a sustainable business in our space. The answer to the second question, what do you do, is batten down the hatches and make sure that every dollar that you're spending is spent on something that truly matters, not something that makes the experience 
experience of working at Royvin better necessarily, but something that makes the outcome of what Royvin does more likely or more impactful. On why we're having this correction, I could give my opinion on that question, but there's a lot of people who have given opinions on those questions, and I'm not sure. Sorry, a hard question to answer. Yeah, sure. And so let's talk a little bit about some of the inefficiencies across biotech, or perhaps as a whole, operating models across biotech and where you see room for improvement for us as a sector. Yes. I do feel like there were no exception to this. And I've said it explicitly in our marketing materials for years. I feel like biotech often sets itself up as like an answer to big pharma. And I guess like I should start by saying big pharma does a lot of things really, really well. For all of the great success on the R&D side that biotech has had over a multi-decade period, the vast majority of commercial success, the vast majority of actual successful distribution of good medicines to patients has taken place in the hands of big pharma companies. And broadly, biotech companies struggle to do it well because it's hard and it requires scale. And because I think big pharma companies are smart and thoughtful. I think Pfizer's execution over the past 24 months has been extraordinary. And they've run circles around other companies that are sort of smaller and newer trying to do similar things. So I think big pharma does a lot of things well. I think as a consequence of the sort of nature of the industry, there's like a lot of implicit monopolies built into biotech. There's like the literal ones, right? FDA and the patent office together grant companies a literal monopoly on the distribution of a drug. And then there's just like a lot of implicit monopolies, right? Payer relationships or scale relationships, R&D expertise is limited, trade secrets and know-how are like hard to come by. And so there's just like a lot of other reasons why entrenched players often have like a benefit. And I think the sum total of all of that, which I think is not so different, to be honest, from like at least what the finance industry looked like a decade ago, compared to like consumer retail business or compared to consumer tech companies, we're just way behind on like a bunch of different dimensions. And some of that, by the way, is that we're trying to answer harder problems. I guess like to state an obvious fact, if Facebook wants to answer a question like, should the like button be two pixels wider? They run a massively overpowered 100 million person study in like an afternoon and they get a definitive answer to the question immediately. If we want to answer the question, does a medicine have five points of impact on systolic blood pressure? You run a 150 patient clinical trial, it costs $40 million and takes 18 months and like you get an answer. And, and so it, it's just like a very different cycle time. We don't have any big data. All of pharma's data roughly is like medium or small. And so it's just a sort of a different set of problems. But also some of it's just like bad process stuff. The project management tools that are embedded in pharma companies are probably fine. And in many cases, people have like built lots of experience working with them. But like tech companies, by and large, have invented a new generation of project management tools over the past 10 years, most of which, in my opinion, are like better than the standard of care, as it were, for like project management software and pharma. And like pharma has been slow to adopt it. And in turn, like the methods of working with it haven't been developed. So it's just like process stuff that is slow and kludgy that I think can be better. And then there's significant incentive alignment challenges in big pharma companies right now, right? Like if you're the head of a research unit at a big pharma company, at some level, a lot of your career trajectory relies on having a bigger budget. And so like really your incentive is not literally to spend more money, but to like do more stuff and not kill projects and you know, keep things running and try lots of different things. And I think what we've learned from watching biotech as an industry is that the biotech model where you've got your back to the wall, a pretty limited set of dollars, and you have to answer a really focused question as fast as you can, just tends to result in like faster R&D cycles than the sort of big pharma equivalent. Not, not always, and there's certain therapeutic areas, certain kinds of programs that big pharma is definitely going to be better at working on. But in a lot of cases, I think the sort of nimbleness that comes from biotech is a more efficient mousetrap. Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, our sector reminds you of how finance was operating perhaps 10 years ago. I'm curious, since you've been in both worlds, are there some areas of innovation in finance over the last you know five to 10 years that you think 
when applied to biotech may have legs or even just a mental model as to how you think about applying some of those? The one thing that I think is interesting about finance is how new entrants are changing the field. And this is like a business model point, not necessarily like a literal tech point. You know, you're a giant global commercial bank and some startup shows up in some small part of your business, right? They've built a better tool for transacting in the foreign exchange market. And you're like, well, whatever, retail foreign exchange business isn't that important to me. And we still have the stuff that matters. It's the big commercial stuff. And so like, we're going to ignore it. And then some other startup comes and they're like offering a sort of better business model for refinancing. I don't know, this is not relevant during the pandemic era, but like student lending. And you're like, well, whatever, like that's not a great business for us. The government backstops it anyway. It's a whole syndication game. So we're losing out a little bit of that because it doesn't matter. And then I think you like take a step back and you look at like the extent to which banks were under attack from innovation in all directions. And there's just this like death by a million cuts phenomenon where like a bunch of little imperceptible pieces of the business were like slowly getting reshaped. That's because it's hard to go at the core, right? Like it's hard to build a new depository institution or to build a new bank. Around the edges, there's just like an incredible sea change happening where like little bits and pieces of the consumer financial experience or the financial sort of mechanisms of the world are changing. I'm buying an apartment and the management company for the apartment required a deposit check so that I don't like damage the elevator when I move into the building, when I buy the apartment. And that check had to be like a certified check. To get a certified check, you walk into a Bank of America branch and you like tell them what you want and a teller from the other side of the counter like prints a special check on a piece of paper and hands it to you. The rest of the process, I send money to people on Venmo. I send money to my doctors on Venmo. And it's just like crazy distinction between like how quick it is to do certain things in consumer finance. And then there's these other things that rely on this like antiquated infrastructure to transact. I think pharma is going to be similar, to be honest. I think everyone kind of expects, and Royvind even is sort of built on this idea that you can like disrupt pharma by building pharma. And I think we're going to succeed at some level at doing that. But also a bunch of the stuff that we currently think of as like intrinsic to pharma is just going to get lopped off in different directions. You see it with CROs where like even before the sort of tech revolution, like pharma's used to mostly do that stuff in-house. And then this whole industry built up around like being more efficient at executing clinical trial by building like a center of excellence around that. And I don't know if that's a good model or a bad model or maybe an opportunity to replace it or to do better. You know, I think you're just like going to see that in lots of places where like little bits and pieces of the business are going to get chopped off and reorganized and built into a tech company or about tech company or whatever. And I think the shape of what's going to be left at the end will be different than we expect. So that's something that I think mm. is maybe in common between pharma and, and, and finance. Yeah, very interesting perspective. So we as a sector were, like every other sector, we were forced to think differently during the pandemic. And you know, there was some disruption and innovation that obviously happened during the pandemic, particularly around vaccine development and such. I'm curious to hear, what are some of the innovations that you saw that were particularly interesting across our sector that you think that are silver linings of the pandemic that you hope last long after the pandemic? So there's some really obvious ones. It was going to be a long time before mRNA as an infrastructure for medicine was properly battle tested. And yeah. we've lopped years off that process, right? Public familiarity with it, doctor familiarity with that as a therapeutic modality. The mRNA COVID vaccines will have advanced the field of like mRNA delivered therapeutics and lipid nanoparticle delivered therapeutics more generally significantly. That's like a scientific point. 
we literally did not think we could develop a vaccine as fast as we developed a vaccine. And I think one of the sort of, I don't know if it's an overlooked point, but like an interesting thing about the mRNA COVID vaccines is like, in some meaningful sense, the problem solved by an mRNA vaccine versus a like viral protein vaccine is a manufacturing problem. The body becomes the biologic manufacturing facility. And so smaller doses, more distributed manufacturing, like you can just like do more with less, basically. Just like an interesting thing to sort of see. That's a specific set of scientific points that I think will have lasting implications for vaccine development and lasting implications for like mRNA drug development. Then there's other things. The regulatory approach, at least in the US and other jurisdictions too, I think clearly changed during the pandemic in a lot of different ways. I think in some good ways, right? FDA moved quicker on it's not our products, but FDA moved quicker. Anything related to COVID, FDA moved quicker than I think anyone really thought they could. Like we actually did. We had an antibody against GMCSF, which is a pro-inflammatory cytokine that was a potentially relevant cytokine to like these cytokine storms that people thought were causing early COVID deaths. And so we ran a study for acute respiratory distress in COVID patients with an anti-GMCS, if anybody, it didn't work, which is fine. That science to try these things. And it was a great thing to have worked on and we thought we had a chance of making a difference. So we ran at it. The incredible thing about that is from the idea to run this study to the mm. first patient dosed, I've lost track of the exact number of days, but it was like somewhere between 30 and 60 days from like when we thought about running this study to when we were dosing patients in a clinical trial, which is like, I don't know, two years shorter or a year shorter than it yeah. is in most other settings. And so it's like very, very different. And a testament to where credit is due. I think like FDA created all kinds of channels for people like us to work fast. And I think it was really encouraging to see. I think much of that has not yet percolated through the agency and other spaces, but it certainly set a pattern that I think is like interesting. On the other side, we're all seeing this every day. The complicated issues that the pandemic has created for labor markets generally have played into all kinds of pervasive problems for pharma. And that relates to like FDA, where, you know, it used to be much easier to actually get someone from FDA in a meeting. There's a formal process for it, but like used to be you requested a meeting with FDA and you got a meeting with FDA. Now, in many cases, you request a meeting with FDA and you get a written response, like what they think of your questions, which is just a different process. And it's because they're short-staffed, like everybody's short-staffed. It's like hard to Mm -hmm. take all these meetings. And so they're doing the best they can. FDA is an impressive organization. The same thing is true. Recruiting clinical trials is incredibly difficult right now. And it's incredibly difficult because picture a doctor's office, the like marginal employee at the doctor's office is the one who was handling site enrollment. And so if the doctor's office has too few people, they're still going to treat their patients. They're still going to handle their bill and claims. They're still going to manage the office. The thing that falls off the list is participation in clinical trials or not even participation, but like actively managing and getting patients into clinical trials. Like it is the last priority on the list relative to like treating patients. And so it's just gotten really hard to enroll patients in clinical trials. So I think like a lot of stuff has come out of the pandemic that's affected the industry. I have things I'm hopeful for. There's clearly been a sea change in how patients view telemedicine as an opportunity. I did way more telemedicine during and since the beginning of the pandemic than I did before. My traditional GP doctor's office now routinely accepts telemedicine appointments. I can call, I can see a doctor, I can describe a complaint, I can get a prescription written. I don't need to go to the office for it. That's something that like literally was not offered by them until the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it's now just a feature. It's the way that it's going to work. And I think we probably have not yet fully internalized as an industry in biopharma, the ways in which that change will reverberate in trial execution, in what kinds of therapies can be distributed and what kind of therapies get prescribed, in what therapeutic areas are sort of different as a consequence of it. So that's really a thing that's coming. Yeah. And you talked a little bit about labor markets and the issues there. I'd love a couple of points just from my perspective. So over the last year in biotech, 
one in five employees switch jobs. On the CRO side, turnover is even higher. I think it's somewhere between 35 to 45% year over year. And I think there's a recent survey we put out by Biospace where something like 50 to 60% of all biotech professionals are likely to look for a new job over the next year. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the labor market. What are some of the challenges that you all are seeing? And also any thoughts you have around opportunity for us as a sector? So the first thing I'll say is this clearly like changing week by week and day by day right now. And I feel like 2021, maybe the very beginning of 2022, was like an insane labor market in target geographies for biopharma in a crazy way, right? Like demands for executive hires were completely different than we'd ever seen before. People were staying short periods. It was just like a wild job market. In part, that was fueled specifically in our sector by one of the most plentiful capital availability environments in history. There was like money pouring in and it had a necessary impact. Everyone was trying to hire. That's clearly a little bit different now. The sector's just like in a different place. I think it's still a pretty hot job market for the right talents. But it's just a different vibe than it was a year ago. Yeah. And now there's been 120 companies have had layoffs just within the last year. Yeah. Things have changed. Yeah. That's really different. To the pandemic point, and then maybe I'll get to the more general question. To the pandemic point, one of the interesting things about that sort of labor market question is it's just been reshaped. There are some jobs that like previously you could hire four, and now there's like one applicant for every 20 spots. And then there's some jobs, it's just different in different places, really hard to find certain skills and there's certain people that are plentifully available. It's like a totally different shape of the curve. And I don't think it's shaken out yet. And you see, again, you see it in life. It used to be that restaurants were fully staffed. It's like things are different. It's harder to get an Uber than it used to be. Stuff is clearly changing the shape of the labor market. I'd say in terms of the second topic, which I think is a broader topic, not related to the pandemic, which is just like opportunities for our industry from a talent perspective. I will say, I do think that's like a really interesting question and probably could be the subject of its own complete discussion. Royvin's always had a view. One of the things that we've done differently is I'm not a scientist. I'm not a biomedical scientist. One of the things that we've done differently is we've built a business where our talent pool is a combination of people from like specifically inside Biopharma who have a lot of drug development experience. And you need that because A, any given drug development program is a really expensive car. You don't want to crash it. And then B, we are fundamentally taking out untested chemicals and giving them to people. You need expertise and care and medical oversight to do that safely. So I think like expertise is valuable, but also... Some of the process problems that we talked about before, some of the things of like, well, this is just how it's done. Mm -hmm. I feel like if you create some proper cross-pollination, if you bring people who like have done project management for, I don't know, Tesla or Meta or Apple, and you sit them next to a project manager from within Biopharma, I think like there's an opportunity to learn in, in probably both directions, but at least is relevant to me in the sort of inbound to our industry direction. It's just not something that's done that often, frankly, in biopharma. And so like a lot of biopharma jobs historically are these like apprenticeship jobs where someone comes in. I don't know that they ever expected to be a clinical pharmacologist, but they decide to be a clinical pharmacologist right out of their program. And then they spend their entire career in clinical pharmacology, moving from company to company. And there's just like not a ton of cross-pollination between disciplines. And we've tried to create as many opportunities as we possibly can for people to move around within Reuven, to try different things. We have an analyst program mm. where people kind of rotate through different areas. I feel like there's something real to be gained, A, out of bringing more generalists to our industry and more people without of industry experience, and B, just moving people around more within the organization so that people who have domain expertise can sort of spread the learnings from that domain expertise in other areas that may not be directly adjacent. Yeah, the really interesting point. Matthew, before we close out, I'd love to ask you to reflect for a minute. And you know, given all that you've seen 
over the last several years across finance, biotech, et cetera. What's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self knowing all that you now know? One piece. First of all, just like for me, and I figured this out relatively early, but not as early as I wish I had. Intellectual boredom is just like the enemy for me. Keep yourself in roles where you are challenged and move until you find a challenge. Never allow yourself to get bored. And that's probably not true for everybody, but for me, like intellectual boredom is my professional enemy. I perform way better when I'm intellectually engaged, when I'm curious. Curiosity has been like the most important fuel for my career. Asking lots of questions, not caring whether I annoy someone and asking lots of questions. Like that's been my rocket fuel has been like constantly wanting to know more. So, so that's sort of one piece of advice I'd give. I think the second piece of advice is take professional risks. I think especially early in your career, things that seem like they matter a lot, you won't believe me until you hit later in your career, like things that seem like they matter a lot don't actually matter a lot. You're worried about pissing someone off by leaving a job too soon or whatever. Like you will not care what that person thinks of you two years from now, nor will they think ill of you two years from now because they will have forgotten who you are because it turns out like the world doesn't care about any of us. Take professional risks. Go for the thing you care about. Try out new things. And, and I think that's just like an important thing for anybody early in their career. It's sort of interesting in, in the sense that like, whatever, it's just a continuation of this fact that in middle school, you have English and math and science and maybe social studies or something as like subjects. And like at the high school, when you add like three or four more, there's a computer science class, there's like different sciences. Then you get to college and there's like 50 majors or whatever. Maybe in college, you're aware of a half a dozen or a dozen career paths. But then like in the world, there's like a billion career paths. Everybody's got their own career path. There's like all these different things you can do. And I feel like the earlier you realize that like you can kind of do anything you want, and it's just a question of like finding it and trying out things until you find the thing you like, the more reps of that you get before you kind of settle into something. Yeah. What you said about decision-making and whether things matter or not made me think of the five by five rule. Like, does it matter in five seconds, five days, five months, five years? Yeah, that certainly resonated. Well, Matthew, it was a pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks for sharing your insights and perspective on current market and the exciting work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Royvap. This was fun. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.